Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait What? Comics Podcast for the Savage Critics website. Believe it or not, this is episode 37, and Graham McMillan and I are here to talk about our expectations for Chester Brown's Pain for It and Dave McKean's Celluloid, as well as revealing Gingerbread Girl by Paul Tobin and Colleen Cooper, FF number one, Superman 710, Fear Itself, Axe Cop, Bad Guy Earth number two, One Piece, Secret Adventures, and a little title you probably haven't heard of very excited to be discussing for the first time ever Final Crisis by Grant Morrison. It's 90 plus minutes of rollicking comics action that may not have been recorded two weeks or so ago by the time you actually get around to hearing it. Either way, we hope you enjoy, and thanks for listening. Jeff Lester. (laughs) The Methuselah Imperative, Jeff. The Methuselah Imperative. Are you referring to the Star Trek episode, Grant? Bizarrely, it's it's the name of um, a new Titans. That's not the Teen Titans. It's the Titans uh, storyline from DC. And I kind of love it. I just read it right there. And it's in my head because it sounds so like it, the Judas contract to Methuselah Imperative. It fits. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It totally it's like the writer is like, how can I completely relive the comics of my youth? I know come up with a terrible name that, as you said, sounds like something that should be in a Star Trek episode from the 60s. I was pretty sure it was, so it shows you what I know. Yeah, I hopefully it'll be the sort of thing they can do, like, an annual event and just run through, like, all the names of the Bible for, you know? Like, <laughs> that would be spectacular, wouldn't, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be great? It'd be the Lot Treaty. Uh... <laughs> I, was, I thought you were going to go somewhere with Moses. Oh, you know, I, it, it was tough, because I was having... Holy some... Moses! <laughs> Part one of twelve. Do you want to know the plot of the Methuselah Imperative, by the way, or at least the thing that starts it off, which I find hilarious and I know it's not meant to be funny. You know yes. Deathstroke, the Teen Titans villain, who's now the lead character of Titans? They've apparently gouged out his other eye. <laughs> <laughs> so he just sort of stumbles around blindly? I, I, I shouldn't find that funny, but I really do. <laughs> No, you should, because that's, uh, that's actually quite hilarious. Oh, my God. I kind of love that. I mean, I, I don't read Titans, it has to be said. Um, mm-hmm. Everything I hear about Titans, it sounds like it's just this disaster of a book. It's the one that Arsenal's in now, now that he's had, like, had his heroin relapse and like hung around with dead cats. Right, exactly. So is this, is it J.T. Kroll's Titans, I'm assuming? No, no, no. no. J.T. Kroll's doing Teen Titans. And doing a surprisingly good job. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's, it's Eric Wallace who's doing Titans. Ah, I see. Who's, who's now the new J.T. Kroll? Yeah, apparently. J.T. Kroll has suddenly turned out to be decent, and <laughs> Eric Wallace is taking over things with the Methuselah Imperative. <laughs> the Methuselah Imperative. The Ezekiel Handshake. Oh, my... <laughs> See, that's wonderful. I made the Ezekiel handshake. More than the Methuselah imperative, which this interview is telling me blood will be spilled. Wow. Wow. Jeez. That's a drag. You know, well, it's probably better than, uh, oh, I don't know, the, the Onan agreement where seed is spilled, right, I suppose. so. Uh, talking about the Onan agreement where seed will be spilled, uh, I am apparently going to get a review copy of Dave McKean's Celluloid. Ooh. Which I don't know if you know or do not know. It's his um, a his first full length graphic novel ever. 
But B, his uh, attempt to do artistic pornography the same way that Alan Moore did uh, with Lost Girls. Well, not quite the same way. Exactly. It would be erotic somehow. <laughs> it's the same way in, in the sense of he's trying to do it. Not in the same way as in it's probably going to be terrible. Uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I got an email yesterday asking me if I'd like a copy. And it was one of those, yes, please. Yes. Please. I want my copy, please. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. That's a, that's great. I sh- I probably should have emailed the. I kind of wanted a copy of uh, Joe Matt's Pain for it, and uh, didn't actually bother to try and. Who, who is doing? Who's publishing that? Is that John Quarterly? I I would assume, right? Haven't they been you, his publisher yeah, since I, forever? I honestly, so no, I know that I've read Joe Matt, but I couldn't tell because I basically everyone. Oh Jesus! Just, I'm sorry. Did I say Joe Matt? I meant Chester Brown. Jesus! Oh, I know who you meant. Yeah, I, I actually knew the book you meant. I, I for some reason just thought it was Joe Matt, and I was misremembering. <laughs> Well, I mean, it really is. kept going because honestly, I would have just the whole way along. I would have been like, "Yeah, okay, Joe Matt, sure." Yeah, it's, it makes sense. It's pornography and women and prostitutes. It's got to be Joe Matt, right? You know, it's, <laughs> it'd be awesome if like Seth does his follow up like five years after the fact or something like that. Oh God, I, I would really love to read that. Yeah, that would be like. <laughs> Just like kind of really like uncomfortably well cartooned and you know somehow looking like a New Yorker, you know they should get exactly. Set. It would just it would just be like a New Yorker. Yeah. It'd, be, it'd be um. God, what's the film? There's there's like a, a really bad documentary about the filmmaker who is it called? I was a sex addict. I am a sex. Oh yeah. Do you know, yeah. Do you know the one I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like it'd be guys like that, here in San it, Francisco. Yeah, yeah, but it would be drawn in New Yorker style. Like each page would just be one picture and a right. waiting caption. But the waiting <laughs> caption would just be things like, you know, please stop crying. Here's twenty dollars. <laughs> Excuse me, I seem to have my self worth caught in my zipper. Yeah, that would be. Uh, that would. See, I'm, that was actually funny, Jeff. That was, <laughs> my joke by actually being funny. Sorry, I just—I thought that would be part of the joke. I, I don't know. <laughs> You're right. I guess on any, every level, the idea of having it be like a New Yorker cartoon and having it have a recognizable punchline sort of screws the punchline right there. Uh, yes. So I think I had like an extra way to cap on Seth, but it's it's not coming to me now. So, uh, but yes, uh, Chester Brown's paying for it. I really am quite eager to see a copy. It's interesting that reviews are coming out now, and the reviews tend to be quite thoroughly like, "Hmm, I am creeped out," you know. So, well, it's, it's kind of a creepy subject. You know what I mean? Oh, sure, sure. I I completely understand. I actually understand and respect him for being like, you know, this is what I do and I want to talk about this and let's talk about it in mature fashion. But at the same time, I, I, like I said, I appreciate him for wanting to talk about it in mature fashion. I'm not sure if anyone else wants to talk about it at all. Do you know what I mean? It's one of those things where it's like, you know, I really do appreciate that you want to get this out in the open and discuss it. But if no one else wants to discuss it, then it becomes this other thing. It becomes like you uncomfortably showing off. (laughs) Well, or whatever you want to phrase it. I think my problem is, at least from the reviews, is that I think that there is a... Uh, you know, as, as as someone who lives out in freaky deaky San Francisco, and I, I, I'm sure this actually comes up a lot in Portland too. There is a, a I think, a very viable need to uh, legalize uh, sex work and also 
um, draw uh, like attentions to, I guess, the the problems of it, the way that it's legally sort of um, dishonest and biased in the way that it persecutes uh, the the sex workers. Sex workers, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, a whole bunch of issues. Like, I think it's a really relevant topic, and there's a whole bunch of areas of you know, risk management and community outreach and all sorts of other stuff that are super, super important to look at. It sounds like Brown touches on some elements of that and then kind of moves on to, I think, some other uh, theories, I suppose, that he has about, you know, sort of it being kind of um, like the preferred, like sort of like the natural extension of human relationships and some other things that just seem like a little too, you know, kind of well, well, potty, I guess. That's kind of, I don't want to say my concern, so I'd be lying if I said I was really concerned. I guess that's what I expected from it. I expected it more to be about Chester Brown than to be about sex work, if that makes sense. Right. Well, I, I was kind of hoping for both, honestly, because some of the stuff with uh, Louis Riel and some of his other work... Like I, I, one of the things that I appreciated about Brown is that, you know, unlike, for example, say Joe Matt, Brown was able to take that sort of realm of auto bio comics in like, I never liked you or the playboy or something and really kind of pull back, you know, like he, I really felt like he did a pretty good job of, he never lets himself be the totality of the picture for most of his, his work. So I was kind of hoping that what we would see would be something that would be like very personal, obviously, but that could touch on the larger ramifications. Um, and it sort of sounds like he fell into the potentially, I don't, I don't know. I haven't seen the, the copies, but the reviews I've read make it sounds like he sort of fell into the sort of the autodidactic trap of like, oh, okay, I'm the only person who's ever written about this ever, and therefore, every single theory that I have, you guys are going to have to listen to, including the really crazy ones that 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 move, <laughs> like, you know, move out of the realm of squeaky sexuality, and then manage to splash right, cannonball right back into that realm of squeaky sexuality, so. I was actually looking at the press release uh, mm-hmm. from last year when it was announced, mm-hmm. and I guess we were kind of warned about this because the book is described by by the publisher as it is unabashedly frank in his depiction of his sex life while cool asserting his view of a controversial topic. Right, right. Do you know what I mean? Like it's it's kind of pretty much is it's all about him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> there, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm really curious about the book, but I really can't get past the feeling, and I had this since it was announced. That I think I would like the book if it was someone else doing it. <laughs> really? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know. There's something about Brown that, like I said, I just kind of expected it to be about him. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. I I don't know. Again, I really. You know what I want to see? I want to see Chris Ware doing it. You want to see Chris Ware? Doing and I'm I'm actually not as sarcastic as it sounds. I would love to see Chris Ware doing something like that. Wow, that's really interesting. I'm trying to think who I would... I would like to see Joe Sacco cover it. it like, as long as we're picking dream people. Cause I, just because as I think... Long, as long as we're picking dream people... To, to, to cover... Talk, yeah. To prostitution. Yeah. I want to see Grant Morrison do it. Yeah, I want to see Rob Liefeld do it. Actually, yeah, you know actually. I genuinely would love to see do it. Paul Pope. Oh, Paul Pope. <laughs> 
See, I don't. I just think that Paul Pope would just be like a more alluring version of Chester Brown's. Don't you? Like, did you ever read that <laughs> dead silence on your end? Apparently not. No, no, uh, I, I, no I, I was waiting for what you were going to say. Oh, well, I, no, I was also like a, a more alluring version of Chester Brown's. Uh, maybe. Do you, say, do you find them similar writers or just similar egotists? Uh, I think that, well, I, I think that, uh, yeah, sort of similarly self-centered-ish. I mean, I suppose that, I mean, on the one hand, Paul Pope's got a whole bunch of chops. Like, I'm like, yeah, I'd love to see parts of that. But, like, I remember there was <laughs> like, some... I'd love to see that. I don't well, think yeah, I'd like to read, to read it. it. Yeah, well, because I, I remember he did some... Didn't he do some story that was like his obsession with a woman that was like broken into two or three parts and like in like an Oni quarterly or something like that? Is I that don't remember that. Maybe ring any bells? I mean, it 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 was it was something that was like some story oh obsession of his that really was like a lot of a lot of pictures of attractive women like lounging around kind of. Well, and, his, his, um, Paul Pope book has an entire section, which is him like, Hey, I love burlesque. Here's lots of drawings of vaginas. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So on the one hand, it would look great on the, on the other hand, I don't think that like, I always feel like Pope's way into any topic is always through kind of the romantic view of it. I yeah, which I think might be why I liked. I prefer to read it <laughs> because I think of I think of Brown as being more of a um, kind of almost like comically uncomfortably clinical. I suppose you know. See, whereas I find him more of a misanthrope. Brown. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Interesting. I, I, he's somewhat misanthropic. I don't think he's. He seems much better adjusted than than Seth or Joe Matt in that regard. Not sure, but at the same time, like God saying, you know, this yeah. misanthrope is better adjusted than this super misanthrope. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I realized like I was hedging my bets a little bit. Ninety percent of the world. I suppose this guy who is a hundred. <laughs> Yeah, maybe stacking the cards a little bit. I didn't quite mean to, but <laughs> but I I guess I for me I just find him I don't know. I mean, and it's been a while since I picked up anything of Browns, but I never found him especially misanthropic. I just found him detached. You know what I mean? Like his stuff is even when the stuff that's like actually pretty witty and engaging. Like I don't know. I I just never find it. I, I never find anything especially misanthropic about it. I just it, find it's it... possible that I'm reading in mm-hmm. some of that because I definitely have a, a tendency not to read in misanthropicness, misanthropy. Um, but if people aren't, I don't know. I, I think I can sometimes read detachment as contempt. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For one of right. a better way of putting it. Sure, sure. Yeah, uh, especially when the, the, the person writing or making movies or whatever also has a certain amount of clear self-value. Mm, mm-hmm. I sort of read it as, I am better than blah, blah, blah. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, there's a possibility that I'm, I'm reading in. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I mean, again, it, it would be interesting to, to probably sit down at one point and, and compare notes more closely as to what 
each of us have read by Brown, but um, clearly both of us have to read Bane for it and then talk about that. Yeah, obviously. I mean, if we can spend this long talking about without having, (laughs) I remember having read the book. Yeah, exactly. Just imagine what we could do if we actually did read the book. It would be amazing. (laughs) It wouldn't be as as amusing, though. (laughs) No, exactly. Because we couldn't say things like, I hear there are robots in this book. And, you know. <laughs> it's. I really think he's brave for talking about the plight of robotic sex workers. <laughs> Dude, that, that actually would be kind of great. He just, like, goes <laughs> right off the rails there. It's like, book four, The Frankenstein Vagina. Yeah. Oh my god, please tell me at some point you'll write a novel called The Book of the Frankenstein Vagina. You know. <laughs> It'll sell, seriously. like, cakes. If... Well, by hotcakes, Frankenstein vagina. <laughs> Actually, you know, I have to say that if you have to come up with a nickname for a Frankenstein vagina, hotcakes might not be <laughs> altogether bad. And believe me, when I get that Avatar contract, my friend, Frankenstein vagina for everyone. Um, no, no, no. It's also be the marketing hotcakes, slogan. Colon Frankenstein vagina. <laughs> Actually, if it was like colon the Frankenstein vagina imperative, I think that it would actually be. Uh, no, I'd have to go to DC. <laughs> it would be kind of awesome just to see them flip out and go, sure, why not? Okay, let's do it. You'd be like, I'll write it Android. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. Well, let's move back into the realm of comic books that do exist and won't get us jailed. Um, do, is there... I, I read a whole bunch of comics last week, so I can talk about That's because I didn't. That's not true. I read a whole bunch of comics, but I didn't read anything that came out last week. Well... <laughs> I, I read... Because I, I got my box of Top Cow comics. Oh, hey! Well. Uh, and I got the, the Captain America Omnibus, and I bought Gingerbread Girl from Stumptown. Oh, wow. So they actually... They had more than... They had copies for sale. You didn't just look yes. at it. And no, 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 no. They had 100 copies for sale and they sold out. And wow. And completely deserved to sell out. It's spectacular. Jeez, man. I'm, I'm very... It's like if you're reading it online or if you've seen it online, mm-hmm. um, it, it reads infinitely better in a book when you're not like, you know, two pages, click, blah, two pages, click. Um, also, it's the pages are toned. Uh, uh-huh. not just, it's not just grayscale. Um, and there's something about the end of it that is both a surprise but so fitting. And again, this is maybe just me. I should really ask Paul what he thinks. Um, but I read it really melancholy that I I just was like, I already was really loving the book until that point. At that point, I was just like, oh, God, yeah, I'm completely in love with this book. Wow. Hmm. Really, 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 really loved it. Wow, that's terrific. I, I hope it's massive for them. I really do. Yeah, I, I do too. Any idea when the actual release date to the direct <laughs> marketplace is? Oh, yeah? It's me, yeah. Okay. Well, that sounds like something I will have to... How long is it in total, then? Uh, it is... Let's see if the page is numbered. I think it's only like 100 pages. It might even be less. Let's see. Mm-hmm. Yep, it is apparently 104 pages. Except it's not, because it starts on page 7. So the story oh, starts on okay. page 7 and ends on 104. Okay, so, so it's about 96 pages, 97 yeah. pages. Yeah. It's a good length. Hmm. Well, I look forward to seeing it. Uh, and the great thing is... Oh, well, so have you dug in on the Top Cow stuff? Is it... Is yes! It, yeah. Um, 
Here's the hilarious punchline to the Top Cow stuff. And I'm going to say this because I'm presuming this podcast is going to come out after Tuesday where I'm going to write about it. Yes. Um, I am probably going to hunt down Witchblade on my own. Really? Yes. Oh my god. Graham McMillan, Witchblade reader? Yeah. Wow. All right. Uh, uh, yeah, tell us more. Well, it's, it's funny. So they sent me uh, the first couple of trades of Ron Mars's Witchblade, which, I mean, he's done something ridiculous, like, you know, 70 issues by now. So it's like the, maybe the t- first 10 issues of his 70-issue run. Uh, plus the first six issues of the Artifacts, like, major event book. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first trade of Darkness, which I've not read, and some Magdalena and Velocity miniseries. Mm-hmm. Um, and Artifacts does nothing for me. Mm-hmm. Artifacts pretty much uh, plays into what I was I was sort of expecting. Right. Uh, it's really funny. I can see. I can see all the like you know this is an event book and we will set up the event and blah blah blah. And if you're following the mythology, this is probably interesting. But if you're not, if you're brand new to the mythology like I am, you're like, ah, huh, this is doing nothing. And then, um, God, what's his name? Poils Poils Portacio. You know the the old. Oh guy? yes. Mm-hmm. Um, he comes in as artist, like in issue four, and it's like terrible nosedive in terms of art. It's amazing. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, stylistically, I'm sure if you like his stuff, you like his stuff. But like his his just panel to panel, everything is it's atrocious. His layouts are terrible, right? Um, and it kind of makes the book unreadable. And so I wasn't really enjoying the book before that, and then the book became unreadable, and I was like, oh no, this is not good, right? But Witchblade, I I was really, really, really surprised by. Hmm. Don't get me wrong, the art is still not spectacular. And if I have the feeling that if I liked the art more, I would actually really love the book. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty much because what Ron Mars does, at least in these early issues, is be like, is he, he does a swamp thing. He's like, I'm not actively going to contradict anything that's gone before, but I'm completely going to recast the book because I don't want to write the book as it was written. Right. So in like the first trade alone, she gets a new, she gets shifted to a new department in the police force. She gets a new partner. Her old partner gets stuck in a coma. Like he, he, he clears the decks in, mm-hmm. in not the most subtle fashion, but you know, if, if you, if you are if for the like one chapter, that the old decks exist is like, right. like, like I just, you're like, this is terrible. It's kind of like, <laughs> Oh my God, he's getting rid of this pretty quickly. Um, and he pretty much sets it up as like a supernatural police series. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, he relatively redesigns the outfit so that she's not showing off as much cleavage. Right. She's still showing off a fair amount of cleavage because it's still a top cow book. Right. Uh, but also, she generally keeps her clothes on for the most part and doesn't wear that whole outfit. Oh, good. It's like, you know, every now and again, she'll have a crazy arm and that's about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I really, I really found myself liking it. I, the first trade, I was pretty much like, huh, this isn't as bad as I thought. The second trade, I honestly finished and thought, I might have to look for the third trade of this. Wow. Wow. Well, uh, that is very cool. Um, I, I, I'm really, I'm really surprised. I was kind of expecting just not to hate it for one of my way putting it. But right. Right. It. Huh. Oh, that's fantastic. I'll be kind of curious to see what happens if that continues through the trades or... I kind of expected not to, purely because I know that it leads up to the artifacts thing that I have no interest in. Right. Although, who knows, maybe by the time you get there, you'll be, like, kind of into it at that point. Yeah, and and for all I know, there's, like, it's probably seven trades between now and then. So, you know, (laughs) there's a lot of time for me to either get into it or get bored with it. (laughs) 
But um, yeah, I I really I really surprised myself by kind of liking it. Hmm. Well, that is uh, that's actually very cool to hear. Um, hmm. I, uh, I actually told, I told him that because uh, I told him in, in, on Twitter that I got the, the books finally. Right. And he was like, do you like it? And you could tell part of him was just bracing for me to be like, no. And instead I was kind of like, shit, I kind of do. <laughs> right. I can't even let him have it with both barrels. Damn it. I know, Graham. Ugh, your reputation as a terrible person I know. is really at stake I know. here. On the plus side, I did read the second trade of Jonathan Hickman's Fantastic Four, and that was just terrible. So my my was absolutely just redirected. Have you read the second trade? Well, no, but I'm assuming that it's everything that comes after the League of Extraordinary Super Reads storylines. It's like... it's like the four issues following it, and it's like each issue is a spotlight and a member of the team. Yeah, and, and it's terrible. Some of sloppiest writing. Yeah, the the writing. I'm stunned, stunned by, it. Mm-hmm. stunned by how. Serious. Yeah, just just like stories that just like you really are like, wait, is that it? Like you, you honestly just kind of stop, and um, the the transition with the artwork is terrible. Uh, the, the, f- the first story in the trade actually has like the laziest thing ever that I can't believe anyone in editorial let him get away with. The plot is the mole man appears and is like, "There's this earth, like city under the plant under the ground, and it's going to devolve everyone, and, and then it's going to come up to the earth. It's rising right now. Oh my god, it's rising! It's going to destroy the earth." And they're like, "We'll go and we'll we'll deal with it." And they go down. And they're like, "Oh my god, it's rising! It's destroying the earth." And then, literally, between panels, they're like, it's not destroying the Earth after all. Huh. Yeah. 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 No, <laughs> That's I, it! Uh-huh. That's your story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was that. There was, like, the Atl- the old Atlantis story. I mean, he's saying up all these, you know, the Four Cities storyline, but it was really not done well, I thought. I mean, it, it was... I made it through the first arc of, of Hickman's FF and went, meh. And then the second arc was where I went... Yeah, I'm pretty much off the book, which is ironic because I continue to keep it on my sub list. So I actually read uh, FF issue one uh, this week, which is a, probably a pretty good segue. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think you'd also read it, right? And yes, it's it's remarkably underwhelming. Uh, again, yeah, I really thought so, I, and I'm re- I'm consistently surprised by the people whose opinions I trust and admire who are like Jonathan Eggman is just on fire mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well you know I do, I do have this thing I sort of wonder if there's a generational thing going on you know I mean I know that sounds kind of goofy because I think there no, are no. people who are down with it that are our age I suppose or in between your age and my age but a lot of the people who are like yeah Hickman's great I'm like I think you are younger than me by about 10 to 15 years you know um, yeah or, I, I I think there's there's some of that, but mm-hmm. there's also I I think there's a lot of um, people are either getting stuff they getting what they want to get or just really wanting to get it. Right. Like the the conversation I had on Twitter between me and, and uh, Duncan Faulkner and David Isamary about the what I see as a really blatant Final Crisis lift in the trade that I read and then being like, no, lots of people have done that before. And it seemed like I, I felt like I wasn't, they just were refusing to engage me on the level I was talking, if that made sense. Like, it was uh-huh. just like, you know, we've decided he's great. Therefore 
he's great. Yeah, I do think that there's a certain level of that. Although you're saying that there's a final crisis lift in the second trade, the one that yes, you're reading yes, with yes. the one-shots? Yes, because they're, they go to a club, or Johnny Storm goes to a club. And to my mind, uh, the speech given by the nihilist at the club mm-hmm. like could have come out of Final Crisis. Mm. It says, Behold, in the word of the anti-priest... Uh, Equilibrium and thermodynamics have left you with no other choice. Do you want to be a slave to fate, a servant to your eventual demise, or do you want new rules for a new life? Mm-hmm. Which really sounds like the whole dark side yeah. uh, language from mm-hmm. Final Crisis. Mm-hmm. It's not just like there's a nihilistic cult, because I'll, I'll give them that. that it, I think that is not an original idea. Right. There's, there's something about the actual language. I don't know. I... I'm I'm okay with it. I mean, I'm going to split the difference with you, Graham, because I, I do think that having flipped through the other stuff, Hickman seems to go to great lengths to drop uh, a lot of science in the FF book. And I think deservedly so, since it is, you know, an FF book, you know, and you kind of have to have, like super science chops or at least sort of a nod in that direction and I feel like he's trying to take it and move in some different directions with it I mean he's clearly clearly Morrison beholding you know in lots of ways but I think that that's kind of inescapable for a certain generation of within this age group yeah yeah and I I I've you know, I frankly think that I don't have a problem with that. My problem with FF issue one is it just like a lot of the other stuff is it reads as, I mean, it's dull to me and it just seems too easily satisfied. Like, like you have, okay. So you've got a first, this is a first issue of a new comic book, right? You've Mm -hmm. got Spider-Man joining the team. You've got the sense that the human torch has died. But I mean, apart from the fact that he sort of manages to push, Really, maybe he puts a three-page fight scene in in the middle of it, but the rest of it is just a lot, a lot of talk, just a lot of gibbety gab, like a a lot of gibbety gab. And I know that some people, for example, the the scene where um, where Alex Power says grace or something, that was actually pretty charming. I just felt like it was followed, you know, considering there were like six pages of like, I don't know, you know, Spider-Man swinging to the Baxter building and Sue expositioning the hell out of him. Even the, the page with like, um, where the faux aim guys like retrieved the wizard, like it's just badly paced. There's like not a, there's, there's no, um, anything. (laughs) There's no points to the issue. I, I mean, the closest, well, it's, it's the classic problem of the point to the, the only point to the issues appears to be the last page. And frankly, I was like, I would rather have this be the third page or the fourth page. You know, I just, I just, the the leisureliness of it really does strike me as, um, and there's just something that just seems kind of weirdly self-satisfied about it, you know. I, d- or I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's leisureliness, but I definitely thought that the first issue lacked a story. Mm-hmm. It felt like lots of, it felt like lots of su- subplot scenes from other comics had been put together, yeah. as opposed to having any sort of narrative arc in the first issue. Right. 
Right. It's all subplots. There's no real overarching plot. It's like, okay, this happens and this happens and this happens. But there's no oomph. There's no there's no velocity to the issue. No, exactly. And and even the fight scene Mm -hmm. just feels like another subplot because there's no dynamism to it at all. It's a, a stunningly undynamic book. Well, and 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 that was something that actually bothered me with the first, I guess, what you've read in the first two trades. There was a, just a shit ton of like, this is happening and it's happened. Okay, let's go back. You know what I mean? Like, they're like, okay, you know, oh, all right. So, you know, Mega Earth is uh, aged 1,500 years. Huh, what you're going to do? Like, there's a real complacency about it. There, you know, just just the whole thing of like when the wizard disappears, and he's like, "You have something of mine. I'll I'll be coming for it soon." And then they sort of blast off or something, and then like, "Okay, well, let's go home and eat dinner now." You know what I mean? Like that's that I think is part of the problem with nouveau Marvel pacing anyway. Like I I remember bitching about it in an early issue of Captain America where, you know, Brew Baker had like. Uh, Steve Rogers and and Sharon Carter like go to Paris and like beat up some terrorists and the terrorists get away and they're like, well, we might as well go get something to eat. We're in Paris now. I'm pretty sure there is actually a line like we're in Paris now, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And it it was just kind of like, huh. And and I know that that there's kind of – it's so difficult to actually do the punching and the talking these days because you can't really do it. You can't laden it down back in those glorious days of the 70s and 80s where it's like everyone's talking way more than realistically could happen in, you know, <laughs> the entire fight scene, much less the one panel of the three-page fight scene. But I, 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 even taking that into into account, I'm just like, okay, so the wizard escapes, he, he poses a threat you guys are just going to go home and, and eat dinner. Like there's kind of something where I'm like, I can almost see it in like this family dynamic, but there's also a way in which it's just like, you guys are like really dumb. You know, it's, it just, there's a, but but that's a problem for, for the entire series. I mean, exactly, exactly. My understanding of the, of the death of Johnny Storm, first of all, he clearly isn't dead, Mm -hmm. but, Secondly, the idea that I mean, it's, I hate how I hate doing this, but I keep doing it. Do you were you reading Mark Waitron? Yeah. yeah. Do you remember the reaction to Thing's death? Oh yes, I. You know, you'd mentioned this actually on on air as well. Wait, I think you should but, mention but, it again. But yeah, well, so, so basically, the thing dies, and the thing dies in front of them, and is seen to be dead. Mm-hmm. And their reaction is, "Let's go and get him back." Right. Whereas in Hickman's FF. Johnny does not die in front of any of them, mm-hmm. but is instead lost behind a portal that is locked. We know Reed unlocks it because we see him unlock it in the next issue. And I know, and they're just like, well, we're mourning. They're not, I mean, there's no element of, we should like go in and take care of that terrible well, yeah, situation. Exactly. <clears throat> they're just like, oh, that's, that's really bad. But the, the whole, I mean, he's doing it way back even in the first train and the second yes. Absolutely. Like, Valeria's been told, like, all of this disaster is coming. And she's like, oh, well, that's bad. I shouldn't tell anyone. And then all of these, quote-unquote, big events happen in single issues, and none of them are followed up on. Yeah. All of them are just... Drove me up and then, and then they're like, well, let's go and do the next thing. And I think it's... I think Hickman means it as they're so used to the spectacular 
that they do not feel the need to overreact to these things, but they're not even reacting to them, which is the no, problem. No, I know, I know. I, no, no, they really aren't. And so it really feels to me like the book has become, it's it's filled with the most passive protagonists uh, available. And I, I don't mean to get all Robert McKee on Hickman's ass, but at that point, it's really hard to stay invested, I think, as readers. Clearly, other readers are, because I think they're just really excited by the amount of, I don't know, ideas and things that are being layered in there. But, but that's I just, just it. There are the, the ideas are there, mm-hmm. but they're appallingly executed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's the problem. Because, I mean, the idea of Atlantis is not really Atlantis. There's another Atlantis. It's an earlier Atlantis, and they don't respect Namor. You can come up with a good story from that. Yeah, yeah. The idea that it's there are hook. four different races of Inhumans in addition to the one we know about. Mm-hmm. And that they basically are coming together to kick the Kree's ass and take over the universe. Great idea. Right. Nothing comes of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and in ways that really seem like when I've bitched about this, other people have been like, oh, he's just putting the pieces in place. And I'm like, well, the pieces are really being put in place in <coughs> completely like uh, unnatural ways, I guess, in terms of like they move and then they stop and then they wait there and then yes. you come back they're they're ready to get going again. But the, it, but the other thing about that defense is why do you expect me to trust that he is going to do anything with this beyond the skill set that he's shown? Mm-hmm. Sure, he's putting the pieces in place, but so far, even in putting the pieces in place, he is not doing so with any dynamism in a way that reads truly to me. Mm-hmm. Like, it's all very unexciting. It's all very clinical. It's all clearly been planned. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, uh, and, it's and, it's out. That, yeah. and it's coming from that point of view. Right. So why are you essentially asking me to believe that when it comes down to his final arc or whatever, he's all of a sudden going to have an emotional resonance to this that he has not managed anywhere else in his work? Right. I, 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 I really right. think that there's a, a belief amongst readers mm-hmm. that planning on its own it's is good enough. Yes. Yeah. And it's it's not true. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, that's it. I mean, there's something where it's like it's awesome to know that somebody's got like a 36-issue plan and they're executing it. But it's another when it doesn't – yeah, when it just it's feels got, it's like – It's got to be a it's, good 36-issue plan. Well, I, I, I mean, like I can come up with a 36-issue plan right now. Doesn't mean it's going to be good. Well, yeah, but you've got to have something drive it. You know, like you're, you're, the problem with a super developed plan is it looks like it, it, it looks like it has momentum itself. Because for, for you, if you're, if you can peek behind it, you know, if you're enough of a, a formalist wonk, you can get really excited by how noodled out and baroque the plan is. But, but there's a difference between a plan and a story. You know, there's a very, very clear difference, and I never seem to feel that gap quite as as largely as when I'm reading Hickman's books. I'm just, you know, FF and S.H.I.E.L.D., which a lot of people praised. I read like, I don't know, four issues of it, I think. And I was just like, I, I cannot care less. I mean, apart from the fact that I have, you know, obviously some oppositions to what he's setting up there. When I was reading it, I'm like... I'm not invested in you've not given me the opportunity to care about any of these people. On the other hand, I certainly have felt that way about Morrison's a lot of Morrison's later work including Final Crisis and various people have sort of poo-pooed me on that. But I I feel Wait, that, they you've not felt invested? 
Yeah, I don't I don't think that you know, my thing with Final Crisis is there was hardly anyone I had time to to feel vested in as a character. You know, except maybe except maybe Turpin, you know. Yeah. Which weirdly I don't know, I keep rereading and everything every time I reread Final Crisis I have an entirely different reaction to it. Right. I'm currently feeling much more charitable towards it. Uh, I went through a period of feeling very uncharitably. Did you re did you reread it recently? Yeah, I reread about two or three weeks ago. I, I'm thinking it's a proximity effect. You know what I mean? Like you reread it and you're like, oh man, there's so much there and it's so Oh, ambitious. no, 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 oh, no. It's the great. Time, no, the time before that when I reread it, I didn't like it. Oh, just right off the bat? Yeah, I was oh, just, okay. this is not holding it together. Huh. Um, and it really, honestly, like it's one of these books that is a constant state of flux with me. Schrodinger's crossover. <laughs> um, I was going to say like it was a self-contained Star Trek franchise, you know, <laughs> where it's like the even times you read it are awesome and the odd times suck. Uh, but no, it, it's – I think Turpin is quite clearly the character you're meant to empathize with and then he kills Turpin and everything goes shit. I think what he meant and what he doesn't do mm -hmm. is for Superman to replace him. Mm -hmm. But the problem with that is outside of Superman Beyond, he writes Superman out of the book. Yeah. Until the last issue, when the last issue is told from so many different viewpoints that you don't get inside Superman's head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he replaces his his sympathetic character with a character who almost purposefully you do not get a chance to feel sympathy for. Right. Well, and who's a long ways away? I mean, you know, I think Turpin pretty much bites it as narrative hook by issue two, right? And I and want to say it's the third Maybe block. okay. So it's three and then Superman comes back at the end of issue five? Six. I think. Six? Okay. Yeah, so six. Superman's so. Superman's out until issue six. Yeah. So you've got you've got a good chunk there where again, people who were reading it were like this is my favorite p portrayal of Green Arrow and Black Canary ever. And I was like, oh, really? I, uh... <laughs> I, I actually do like the portrayal of Green Arrow and Black Canary in it. But at the same time, I, it doesn't give me a lot of, I don't know. There's not, I, not, there's not, not a I'm lot not like, to hook I'm your fingernails like, yeah, on. I'm not like, there's, yeah. a lot of, there's not a lot of stuff there. But for the like two pages or whatever there's there, right. I think they come over really well. But it's a really surface reading. Yeah. It's several reading of almost all of the characters outside of Right. Outside of really Turpin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, and who even then sort of gets truncated in a way of we don't get enough of a chance to really understand how much of Turpin is Turpin and how much of Turpin ends up being, you know, his corruption. You know what I mean? Well, but also I think that what is sympathetic about Turpin is almost all shorthand and playing in stereotype. Yes, absolutely. If you look at what's actually there. Mm -hmm. Well, exactly, exactly. Um, no. I, but I think that that works in, I think that works in Turpin's, to Turpin's benefit because, I think Morrison does the same thing with the superhero characters. But it's almost because we're so familiar with those stereotypes and shorthands that we we basically gloss over them. Whereas Turpin is still unusual enough in a superhero narrative that he seems unusual and he seems like more of a character. Well, he seems like more of a character. Also, I have to say what I find interesting about Turpin is that although he – like you said, the things that we have to hold on to him are very – almost stereotypical. What is interesting is how close they are to Morrison's sort of core topics, I suppose. You know, like Turpin in the first two issues of Final Crisis – feels like he's been ripped straight out of the filth for me, you know? Um, and so there's a way in which 
you, I can't tell to what extent at the beginning Turpin's familiarity was as stereotype as Grant Morrison's as Grant Morrison character type or as a very specific nod to a set of thematic concerns for Morrison, you know, which is the the sort of the diseased authority figure, I guess. For, for for lack of a better see that's that's really interesting because I never put the filth together with Turpin, but I did put the filth together with what happens later in the book. Ah, interesting. Now you're going to make me read the series again. <laughs> <laughs> the worst part is seriously the wait what podcast. If someone were to map out the seventy five plus episodes, of oh god, it's like almost all about Final Crisis. <laughs> yeah, seriously, it's just we can. It's never going to be less than like ten, and usually about thirty percent Final Crisis on any given podcast. It's moving away from Final Crisis, though. But staying with Morrison, I think that Fantastic Four really maps to Morrison's Batman. Mm. Hmm. Um, purely because I, I, I don't think it completely maps to. I think there's a very close parallel. And I think right. the difference is Morrison is reacting to Batman emotionally, whereas Hickman is reacting to Fantastic Four intellectually and has an emotional connect them, connection with them. But I think in terms of like the long-term planning, I think that's what people are catching on to in both. Right. Um, well, I, I, I don't know. I get Okay, on you go. No, 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 because I, I think that's a good point. What I would say is certainly after hearing Morrison speak, he, he's, I think he improvs with Batman a lot more, where he starts with short-term plans, then he switches to a long-term plan, then he sort of like figures out ways to join the connective tissue between them, you know, and ultimately I do think that, uh, whereas I think, again, Hickman's kind of had his like, you know, had his super awesome like PowerPoint presentation or whatever it is that he laid out and uh, that, that mapped it all out from the beginning. I do see, when you mention it that way, I do see that sort of in the way that I feel that almost by the way that, that Morrison is, by sort of honoring every aspect of Batman's past, he sort of was deliberately trying to exercise the character of aspects of that past. I kind of feel like Fantastic Four by Hickman is trying to exercise the Fantastic Four of Lee and Kirby, maybe. You know, like it's like I'm going to I'm going to take all their stuff, I'm going to engage in it, but I'm also doing it to cleanse and purify the book and put it in a genuine new location that I feel like it hasn't been or that it should go to that everyone's been afraid to take it or unwilling to take it. I would love it if he does but I would be really surprised if he leaves it in a significantly different place well uh, unless he unless he you know unless he's going to destroy like say the future foundation and a whole bunch of other stuff I don't know about that I think all that stuff will be in place I just have a sneaking suspicion that you know within four issues of Tom DeFalco's return to the book it's all going to be gone you know um, I look forward to Tom DeFalco returning to the book. <laughs> I think he's, he's the only one who can take it to the future. Uh, and I think the fans truly deserve. <laughs> I mean, you know, fantastic. I don't know. I, I just feel that Human Torch is going to come back alive. Sure. And that the four are going to be, you know, Doctor Room is going to turn out to be a villain. And I don't know. I just, I don't think Hickman is going to significantly change the book any more than, say, Steve Englehart did, or Mark Miller did, or 
anyone. See, my my personal feeling is is even if he gets it to a point where he changes it as much as say Morrison did on New X Men, um, depending on how the editorial team feels that follows him, you know they can just they can just pull that thing apart as, as much as they want anyway. You know, so I mean, I'm I'm just saying I don't, I, you know, I think by the time Hickman leaves the book, will there be four characters? Yes. Will the Human Torch be among them? Yeah, obviously. Will they be in a building filled with super gadgets? Yes. But you know, I, I, maybe not. But I do think that there is a little bit of, you know, possibility of setting up a whole bunch of other complexity or noodling that that people might choose to preserve and there is something to that you know what i mean like kind of like if you think about the robot receptionist or whatever that john Byrne introduced uh it doesn't seem like the biggest you know um accomplishment in the world to to the ff mythos you know the biggest contribution but it's it's better than nothing it's stuck and i i feel like i feel like the fantastic four is a teflon franchise that's part of the problem with it. Almost nothing sticks to it. Oh, no, I, I, th- I think the burn did a lot more than just that. Well, I think I think with by bringing in She-Hulk for so long, burn demonstrated that the Fantastic Four can work when it's not the core four. But they did that before with, like, Luke Cage. Just Yeah, but for a very short time. Well, but so, I mean, you, so you, you, I, I mean, you really <laughs> so think that there's a difference between the length of time? Like, yes, I'm, yeah, I really do. I, I think that what Byrne did that no one had really managed to do before, apart from potentially, was it Roy Thomas or Jerry Conway when they wrote uh, Sue out for a long time? Well, see, this was was to suggest that you could change the theme and you weren't necessarily going to change it back. But as I think you pointed out, the space of time from which, say, Reed gets replaced by the brute Reed and then Thing loses no. his powers and is replaced by Luke Cage and then Reed has no powers and has cut off the team is is actually from like 160 something to right up to 200 when he actually uh, when Marv Wolfman actually has him return. It, it lasts through at least two writers if not three. Really? Yeah, I mean it's 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 very... I honestly didn't think it was that long. I know you've read them more recently than I have so I, I will bow to your uh, I, I I've skimmed over them. Someone hopefully will jump in, and but it's very much like, you know, Thing loses his powers. I believe they do end up on Counter Earth. Reed gets replaced by the Brute. Um, you know, you've got the thing in there. I'm trying to think. At one point, there's one point after it's it's uncut discovered that it's the fake Reed that the band that they disband altogether, and then the real Reed dresses up as like the plunderer or something like that but yeah no it's seriously it's from 160 to 200 and it's a it's a good chunk of issues so uh now admittedly they change the configuration a little bit at each time but you know oh and as i think you pointed out like even before that you had sue out of the team and medusa in the team which that ran for what maybe closer to 15 20 issues i i really should break out the the dvd and look you know but you know, it, it could be argued that the Fantastic Four didn't run as a full team from the time that Franklin got, you know, put in the coma until issue 200, like having the team be partially disassembled. Which is actually a really long length of time. Yeah, it was more the norm than not. 
So I, I think the difference is, is that Byrne clearly did. I mean, don't get me wrong. He did a great job with She-Hulk. There's a lot of stuff. It's one of the great runs. Uh, but I'm just saying that, you know, I sort of feel like as time goes on, the amount of things that stuck to it's it's like barnacles. The number of things that stick to any of these characters is is actually, I think, relatively small. Unless you've got something like, you know, the X-Men team book, you know, and even then you've got characters flipping on and off between, you know, uh, dead and alive, like some sort of crazy light switch, you know. So I, I, I don't know. I, all of which is to say I'm not entirely sure why I'm animatedly uh, defending a, uh, a, re- a run by an artist that I don't especially enjoy. But I do have the sneaking suspicion that... I feel like... Why do you love Jonathan Aikman? Why? (laughs) I just have this sneaking suspicion like every other person that walks in and throws a Fantastic Four proposal on the editor's desk, it ends with the idea of like, we're ending with a new beginning, you know, where all the characters are back in place, but the situation around them has vastly changed. They're in a whole new world that's exciting for all of them to explore, you know, and then the the next the next issue is you know J. Michael Straczynski like having them fight the Hulk for like four issues, and then Sandman for four issues. You know, so it's just the nature of the. Can I just say that Straczynski's Fantastic Four really was appalling. Wasn't it bad? Oh my god! I actually it was one of those like thing. you really don't oh. understand any of this, do you? Oh. It's like it's Superman. It's Superman. Really was yeah. like, especially rereading it with with Roberson writing it now, and Roberson like really doing an amazing job of like dancing and fixing everything. I'd be like, don't pay attention to this. Yeah, um, it's, well, it's kind of amazing just how bad he did. Well, because I think that I think that. You know, rereading that little, you know, J. Michael Straczynski's little intro about Superman, there is kind of that element of like, yeah, I'm a huge fan of this character. I've got the shirt. You know what I mean? Like, there might be an element to Fantastic Four of that, too, where it's like, well, of course I love these guys. I'm a comic book fan. I have to love these guys, you know? Yeah. Like his Superman thing of like, yeah, this was a character who stood up for me and da 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 and bullied this, no 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 And now I have that S on me as a sign that I could become anything that I wanted. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's really not the same takeaway point, you know? That's not really what Superman's about. Sorry. Well, I mean, to I, me, know, I mean... Very, I'm very happy for you that you got that. I, you know, I mean, it's it's the same way that Shaquille O'Neal is a fan of Superman, you know what I mean? But I don't think that it's necessarily the what I consider, like, the most awesome reason to like Superman, I guess, you know? You're a super purist, is what you're saying. <laughs> I'm a, a I'm a super super purist, I think, or something. Oh, a super super purist. I wish I'd said that. Su- super apartheid. Su- oh, whoa. Okay, now you're blowing my mind, dude. <laughs> now you're going into like this whole crazy. Although you know, having said all this stuff, I was kind of um, I I've been loving his run, but I did not actually dig Superman seven seven ten. Uh, where Superman and Batman uh, show up. I, I haven't read it, so I, I, I'm, I'm behind the source. Why not? What, what happens? Well, okay. It, it, or are you going to ruin it? Because if you're going to ruin it, don't tell me. I, I'm not... I'm, well, see, this is it. Don't I, by my very nature, ruin things? Uh, I, You know, the, the art for the, the flashback, or I guess the whole thing, was kind of very odd. 
I guess. Uh, past sequence, travel foreman. Hmm, travel foreman. That sounds like a somebody's like pseudonym, doesn't it? I guess. I don't know. Anyway. Uh, travel foreman is, I believe, is definitely the name he's always used. Uh, travel foreman, amongst other things, has done covers for the last few Superman Batmans, and he's a top cover. Just get back to top uh, cover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. I, you know, honestly, it was there was a number of structures that that I had. Like the 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 setup is classic Silver Age, which is awesome. You know, I mean, Superman and Batman sort of show up. Like Batman sort of summons Superman to a remote hill and is like, "Hey, what's going on with you?" And it moves into this kind of like, "Oh, hey, you know, it reminds me of the time that we first met." And the transition's just really clumsy. So the whole flashback sequence has sort of classic. Loeb Superman Batman panels where you know Superman's narrating in one set of sort of light sky colored panels and then you've got Batman who's narrating his story in like black panels with white type so you know very much like Loeb Superman Batman thing until you realize that they're actually supposed to be talking to each other so it's this very like I see what he's trying to do it's kind of a good idea but the idea that Superman and Batman are recounting this story by telling the exposition to one another makes them seem like real assholes. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, you know, like... I genuinely, just from you describing it, kind of love that. I I love the idea of Superman and Batman meet up and they're like, hey, remember when this happens? And then this happens? And then this happens? Oh my God, and then this happens. Yeah, exactly. Like, they... Yeah. I think that's kind of awesome. I I just I I was like ah oh, ah uh, yeah like uh, this would be my first time encountering the undying caveman Vandal Savage though not his first time encountering me I've since discovered but the explosion fifty thousand years ago that had turned him immortal had affected all of his cells even the cancerous cells in the tumor of his gut the cancer could never kill him but at time the pain made him wish he was dead. And then I'm sort of like that's totally serviceable as an as a act of comic book internal exposition. Once you realize that it's a guy on a mountaintop saying it to another guy who already knows it, it just feels not good, ludicrous. Okay, I I agree and disagree. Mm-hmm. And the reason I disagree is this: that is not a good. That's internal exposition? No. I never, ever, ever, ever think to myself, here is Jeff Lester, and then go into a explanation to myself about mm-hmm. your backstory. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Right. I'm like, it's Jeff. Right. I think if you can buy it as internal exposition, I don't think there's anything wrong with buying it as external exposition. I see. Whereas for me, like internal exposition is kind of like a, a you know, it's a it's a variation of the thought balloon. It's filled with obvious stuff, just the same way that you have stuff in your thought balloon that you don't end up pop up in your speech balloon, or else it seems weird. This seemed weird, and it's one of those things of like you don't see it because the distancing technique is such that it's all told in flashback with captions, uh, which seems like a, a clever way to go. It's just. Once you realize the reframing of the tech, of of the tactic, I'm like, yeah, no, it just it, it didn't work for me. There's there's a great little shot. Um, there are some things that I I liked in it. I didn't utterly hate. There's also there's also it suffers from great in in a way classic Silver Age Superman Batman team up team up 
syndrome uh, in that essentially Superman like does every fucking thing and Batman's like and I will show up and scare them with bats you know and I'm like who fucking cares this guy just beat their ass with like oh my know, yeah but I can't the tank around them yeah I know Grant I know <laughs> I, I loved I, it I, back I, then but I'm just like it's tough it's I feel like you're actually failing it for successfully evoking the thing it's trying to evoke no because to me to successfully evoke it you can you manage to update the you manage to keep the best parts remove the cruft or you even point a finger at the cruft um in in a knowing way i suppose so to me it's like uh how, how to explain it 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 just doesn't it just doesn't uh it just doesn't ring right with the the modern interpretations of the characters and part of that is these characters are being drawn in modern ways they're being talked about in modern ways and i feel previous issues you know like the issue with the flash did a pretty good job of like setting classic silver age tropes with the modern accoutrements of the characters and having them do things that fit in with who they are that worked you know what I mean? And this actually was the first issue that I kind of felt he dropped the ball. I don't think it's a huge dropping of the ball. There's other things in the Superman Flash issue, for example, that I know had similarly Silver Age anachronisms in a way that 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 um, that I felt were being done for a deliberate effect. This, maybe because I thought the art itself was also kind of klutzy, just felt just felt klutzy. It, yeah, part part of me is honestly thinking you'll buy the Flash picking up an alien headset and being mind-controlled by it, but you won't buy the two of them having a, a, a geeking out expositionary conversation to each other. Yeah. I, you know, I, I kind of like that. I feel like you're not even moving the goalposts as much as just you have imaginary goalposts that you're creating <laughs> and decreating as you're... Well, no, no. I, I For me, it's like if it works... You know, you're like, okay, it works. And if it doesn't work, you kind of go like, why doesn't this work? Like, I didn't have a problem with it. I just was like, huh, like that issue of Flash, I'm like, huh, that hit my sweet spot. I didn't have any problems. What I like about it. And then I could sort of run it off. This issue, I like put it down and I was like, yeah, that didn't feel satisfying. That actually felt like a little bit of a mess. And then I have to sit back and go, okay, well, then why? You know, and it's the idea of like, this flashback feels shoehorned in. It doesn't serve any purpose to the larger storyline. It doesn't reveal anything about any of the characters. And it suffers from the problems of there's no reason why Batman had to do anything. And there's so much time spent setting up the whole sequence that by the time that it happens, there's very little time for it to happen and none of it has any impact anyway. Mm Mm-hmm. So, I mean, See, I, I, I want to just be like, you're wrong, but I've not read it. And for all yeah, I know, I know. And I, I'd be like, oh, I'm impressed at the spirit of defense, right. though. <laughs> I do appreciate I, the fact that you're going, well, you know, I haven't read it. So let's just talk about your biases. <laughs> yes, exactly. Hey, <laughs> fuck you, Jeff. But it is. What... Mm-hmm. Uh, Graham, hello. I, I'm kind of like, I don't get why one works and the other doesn't. Right. Uh, but at the same time, having, like, I might read it and feel exactly the same and not understand it as well. Like, right. not be like, I don't know why I'm having this reaction. Well, 
you know, and it's tough because, of course, now I've sort of muddied the waters so that you're either reading it kind of, you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to read it with, sort of yeah, with soft fans. eyes. Yeah, and therefore, exactly. like, if it's just not shit, I'll be like, he's insane. <laughs> Jeff Lester, I used to think you knew what was what. <laughs> no, I, I really, I really have that sort of thing where I can either get, you know, this is the greatest thing ever. And if it's not literally the greatest thing ever, I have a <laughs> real problem with it. Right. Or the alternative, someone says, "Well, this doesn't work," and so I almost go into expecting it to fail, so right. that when it doesn't, again, I, I feel, yeah, you know, what? This is great. What are you talking about? Like, uh, I am unable to draw my own conclusions, <laughs> which is kind of ironic, considering you know, because I'm the same way, and we both sort of uh, work at the comic reviewing game, you know, where the whole goal apparently is to pollute everyone else's opinions before they can pollute yours. So Yes, I, I think that's exactly why everyone tries to rush to the store on a Wednesday. So they can first people online to be like, have you seen this? <laughs> That'd be great. You know, I don't mean to color your reading of this, but clearly Captain America is talking about his dong in this entire issue. Entire issue. Uh, anyway, enjoy. <laughs> uh, I read Dull itself, uh, number one, finally, uh, book one. God, it's actually called book one. That's really, when you said Dull itself, my first thought was really, is there really a comic called Dull itself? Only <laughs> <laughs> when you said book one, I was like, oh, fear itself. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm only laughing at that because of uh, kind of how how witty wittily you've deconstructed my 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 dumbishness, I suppose. Uh, dude, it was. I thought that book was entirely dull. If it didn't have, I, just I couldn't tell from the back of it dull itself. I know it was ironic because actually my blood pressure was a flutter the entire time. I just, uh, yeah, I just, uh, I, don't, I don't dig it. There was some gorgeous cartooning in it, though. Oh, my God. It, Eminem really is, like, the savior of that book, isn't he? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He totally is. It'll be kind of interesting to see how he continue. I guess it. I guess it'll work really well, considering he's going to have, you know, the worthy running around. But part of it is, is that Eminem... Because he's got, you know, he's got kind of a, a a little bit of a cartoonist chops, if you know what I mean. Like, he doesn't hesitate to, like, draw people with, like, really sort of, you know, like, black ink dots for eyes or something. And it works so well with the Asgardians. Making the Asgardians, like, you know, sort of vacillate between being somewhat cartoony and somewhat realistic as the mood strikes him works so well or even when the watcher appears you know the watcher looks just great looks just great like does everything that you'd want a watcher appearance to do um so it's just it's just awesome stuff his storytelling is is, it's just all but if it had been drawn by someone else oh my god i would have i would have just really disliked the issue as opposed to just kind of like ah i'm bored but it's pretty it's really pretty. Laura Martin's coloring on it too. Oh my god, it's really lovely. At some points, I think. Yeah, yeah the, the the scenes where the sun is essentially setting and and you get the, the evening light. I think it's, it's yes, color work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just that's just stellar. But the but the rest of it, yeah, I've got I've kind of got a severe case of like it. Also, did I think a pretty bad job of suggesting why you should care. 
I think. Oh yeah, it, it does a, a non-existent job of suggesting violent care, and also the I it's, I keep on wanting to do this for Newsarama, and then realizing it's so much work for a joke that only I will care about. Uh-huh. But um, I really kind of want to Photoshop out Captain America, sorry Steve Rogers and, and uh, Sharon Carter from the riot scene, uh-huh. and just do you know how they do peanuts without peanuts, like Garfield without Garfield. Yes. You like fear itself without the superheroes, and just be like, this is how Matt Fraction views the real world, everyone. <laughs> Because the, the, the whole, like, you know, this is relevant material is terrible. Yeah, it's really just, it's it's really badly tacked on. Like, it feels really tacked on. In an yeah, but also, like, it also does not feel, it feels like someone has read news stories about how the economy is terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, or how people are upset. Experience none of that themselves. Yes. Oh, uh, not, not at all close. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, I can write this. As someone points out as well, uh, I can't remember who said this, but the whole thing about where the guy's like moving away is like, hey, the Avenger should have built me a house. Makes no sense because he has a house. He can't afford to keep it. Yes. So if the Avengers had built him a house, that'd be two houses he wouldn't be afford to keep. <laughs> like, it's literally one of those things where, like, I didn't catch it first time then when someone points it out. I was like, that really makes no sense. Like, that, I'm stunned that, again, I'm stunned that that goes through an editor. Yes. But also, what? Like, why is that there? What does it mean? Do you know what I mean? It's like, you know, this is showing that he's upset at superheroes for not doing anything for him. Right. By complaining that they're they're not doing something that he doesn't need. Right. Right. Well, and I feel like it's a very clumsy way to, like... It's you a know, complicated it, to say the superheroes don't deal with real world problems. Well, I, I and that could be the case. I actually sort of assume that it was a clumsy way to set that guy up because he's appear he appears at the beginning and at the end, you know, of well at least post riot scene beginning and at the very end to to put him in there as like kind of if if this is you know if you if I buy I do buy into your assumption that this is sort of modeled on Final Crisis in a lot of ways. He's going to be kind of like the Turpin guy, you know? He's going to be like our normal regular person entry into all this superhero stuff. So, we're probably going to see him go frothy with rage and then maybe, you know, gripped by remorse and I don't know, maybe not, but mm, I don't know. I just I I was honestly, I know that when you guys reviewed the first issue at Techland, you were coolish about it. But Axe Cop number two, Bad Guy Earth, I, I was one of my favorite things that I read this week. And reading it after reading Fair Itself was kind of like, ah, this is more like it. Yeah. It <laughs> this was like is a, what comics are supposed to be. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, you know, clearly I don't think that they're supposed to all be, you know, Quite, quite this. Uh, I don't know, mindless. Chris, but there's yeah. something goofy and great on just like every page. And in terms of it being kind of like, okay, you know, big dumb ideas. It does. It doesn't get more big and dumb than you know than a super lion pig. Actually, on the page before it, where somebody like enables the catapults in the freeway, throwing all the cars up in the air, that was awesome. You know, I, I don't know. I just ended up it. It it works as both an incredibly apt satire on event comics, and ends up being just tremendously satisfying on its own. Like I say, I I don't find it satisfying. Um, I find it like I enjoy it, but 
there seems uh, desperation is too strong. Right. But it seems to be trying too hard. Yeah. I felt like the second issue, you would maybe feel that way less. I don't know if you would feel that Say I'm like, Graham would either like this and think that it feel is less that way, or he would actually hate it even more because it feels even more that way. Because I, I don't really get trying too hard, you know? Uh, I, I, I see what I've... I don't know. Maybe it's just because I read, you know, too many of the Axe Cock strips, and so I buy into... I think the thing about Axe Cop that works for me, but I can see being a detriment to, I don't know necessarily you, but a lot of other people, is the hook is a meta hook, I guess. You know what I mean? Like, there's no there's no story in Axe Cop that's sort of the story, I suppose. The whole, like, it's the six-year-old writing and his, and his brother drawing it um, that makes it, like, that's... Like that essentially is the story because there is no, no story. No, no, no that's just it. Like it's right. it's a high con. I guess that's another thing that annoys me about Axcop, which is this: it's a high concept hipster comic. Right, right. It's a comic that people buy ironically. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Hey, it's written by a kid and drawn by his brother. Awesome. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, but that doesn't mean it's good. Well, but and I feel like a lot of attention it gets is because of that high concept and not because of the comic. And I think the comic itself. But tries to live up to that, mm-hmm. and sometimes does so a bit desperately. Mm, I, I pers- sometimes it does live up to, it, but also I get I got the feeling from reading that when I've read it in the past that there's bits that are quite clearly. First of all, it's not really written by six year olds as much as six year old goes. This is an awesome idea, and the brother's like, "Okay, I'll make that into a story," and you can tell when he's filling in the gaps. Well, there's definitely areas where he's filling in the gaps, but I definitely think that to me it sounds more like parts of a um yeah he's he's writing it by basically saying all this stuff that happens or it comes out through kind of a play session but i think for myself as someone who really likes axe cop i don't like it in an ironic way i like it in in a genuine way which is it reminds me of it reminds me of the way that i used to play with stuff when i was a kid it reminds me of the ways in which um i used to think about the way that I would do stories way back before I had any sense of how to tell a story at all um, and realizing the the energy that's kind of inherent in that the thing where I think actually Bad Guy Earth really pays off as a comic book and I don't think that it would necessarily pay off for me in a lot of um, other comics is if you look at Bad Guy Earth as an Axe Cop event comic so to speak it's actually it then moves into that really weird world of it's recapturing kid play, you know, kids play. And it also is a weird parody of an event comic. You realize kind of how much the two have in common and how separate they are because the characterization in Axe Cop is not, is, is, is as thin as fear itself or Hickman's FF, you know, it's, it's practically concave, you know, but, but there's also a dynamism that makes me read it. Like I was reading it and I'm kind of like, wow, how's Axe Cop going to get out of this one? You know? So, um, it, it did a pretty good job of like introducing its various crazinesses and then having those crazy things 
pay off in ways much better than, like I said, the first couple of event comics are. So I know you don't like it. I can understand that. I can at least say for myself. It's not even that I don't like it. I just don't love it. Right. You don't love it. I can totally see that. Um, But I don't think that – I don't – I would be quick to argue that not everyone loves it in a purely ironic way because I don't. Uh, In fact, I will transition that to saying that um, one of the other things that I read this week was four four and a half out of the first five volumes of One Piece – you know the uh, that uh, manga slash anime sensation that has swept the nation by uh, Ishichiro Oda. I'm sure. Yes, I, I, I love that you just called it a, a sensation that has swept the nation. Yes, well, thank you. Uh, and it was kind of interesting. I had read the first first One Piece story before. It was really interesting to go back and reread it in in uh, after having like read Bakuman, for example. And it was super interesting reading four volumes of it where it was like, holy shit, it just became never-ending fight scene after never-ending fight scene. I mean, volume four, which I I skipped volume three because the library didn't have it. Volume four is the start of a new storyline that's already in media res that I think, as far as I can tell, is almost a very funny... I'm not sure if it's meant to be intentionally funny, but seems to actually have taken its its um, story points from a very warped manga version of the, the, you know, the Ballad of Pirate Jenny or whatever the, you know, the, the Black Freighter song from Three Penny Opera that used so memorably in Watchmen uh, in that there's essentially an evil, there's a servant of a sick girl in a town and he is actually, he's been her butler for three years. He's actually the secret pirate king who is going to have the pirates sweep into town and kill everybody. It's pretty pretty much that, that ballot. Somehow he turns that into like 90 pages of crazy fight scenes with like dudes dressed as cats and people fighting with three swords. One of them is in their mouth. And I mean, it just goes on and on and on. It's really incredibly goofy. Um, but I kind of enjoyed it. I'm not really sure. Like I, I'm going to keep reading as many volumes as the library has. I found it really odd compared to say uh, Naruto, which I don't know if you've read Naruto, but I read the first volume of that, or maybe just the first story, which is kind of the the pilot story, I suppose. And Naruto makes sense to me in a way that it's it it's very easy for me to imagine it being like a Jack Kirby comic, I suppose. You mm-hmm. know, um, in that it's about like you know a demon kid who's also a ninja, kind of. It's it's kind of like if Clarion the Witch Boy <laughs> as, was a ninja, as you do. <laughs> as you do was if Clarion the Witch Boy had like grown up instead of as a Puritan but as a ninja and was driven to be the best ninja he could possibly be and then gets involved in like a romantic triangle or whatever. You can see how Kirby would get there. You can see how Kirby would execute it. The fact that they do it totally differently doesn't necessarily take away from the enjoyment. But One Piece, which I realized as I was prepping to talk to you about it, I kept mentally calling it One Note. Um is really like a shonen boys comic where fight scenes go on for 87 pages. Uh, and that's kind of awesome. It's also kind of wearying. So. See, you say that, no, honestly, my, my first thought was, that's not awesome at all. Right. You're like, that's kind of dull. Like, what would I like about that? Um, 
and to be honest, there's stuff about One Piece that I don't th- I don't think that you would like it, to be honest, Graham. Uh, but I think there are things that you could maybe flip through and appreciate. Like the the artist who's like heavily, heavily indebted to Akira Toriyama. I don't know if you know, he's the guy who did Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z. Oh, okay. and, yeah. and, and especially uh, Dr. Slump, which I love. Uh, he clearly uh, is riffing off of Toriyama's sort of character designs and that the characters are incredibly goofy looking most of the time and which allows for sort of in the non-fighting scenes and and even sometimes in the fighting scenes a lot of charm there's just a ton of charm in it also there's something about one piece where the 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 main character uh the pirate luffy who's kind of like plastic man in that he can stretch his body in any direction as a result of eating the the devil's gum gum fruit he (laughs) he is such a a dumb character but incredibly good-natured that it's and so eager to basically fight to resolve things it's it's a little bit like reading popeye like if you kind of like classic popeye strips i think people who like classic EC Cigars Popeye could actually make the transition to One Piece a lot easier than they would think. So there's some kind of weird element of of that for me where looking at manga as almost more of an extension of daily cartoon strips rather than comic books mm-hmm. like kind of has some of the pacing make a lot more sense to me. You know, so something like this that just where it goes on for like, you know, a fight scene for like 60 pages, uh, you realize that the that the people reading it get it in in a much, you know, actually spread out over a certain period of time, sort of the same way that people reading daily comics do. And it sort of makes a little more sense as to the pacing. Um, Finally, I think that you'd be really intrigued by the fight scenes have always have this weird event especially essentially when it gets to the point where Luffy who is more or less unbeatable gets into the situation where he's allowed to kick butt and actually breaks out his powers the perspective changes on it are just unreal like you'll get a panel where he like punches someone and it's drawn from an angle where you do not know what the hell you're looking at and but weirdly, not in a bad way, not in a clumsy way, I guess. Not where mm-hmm. it's like someone will, like Rob Liefeld is drawing something and you just don't know what the fuck he's trying to accomplish. It's like, oh, he really like, you know, the artist really did want to show you how strange this weird punch that comes out of nowhere is by drawing it from the point of view of the villain's ankle as that ankle is flying up over his head. You know, it's it's really a very odd way to, of doing work. I think you wouldn't like it. I think you wouldn't love it, but you might but end up... I might be interested in it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's it's no slam dunk like the other stuff that I've talked about, but I think you'd like. And Interesting. That's, yeah. Interesting. Okay, I might check it out. I, I mean, I've heard lots of other people talk about it, so I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, yeah. David Brothers is actually, I know, is a huge fan and, and talks about it, I think, with a, a great deal more um, knowledge than I do. Um, but... Yeah, you know, if nothing else, the first looking at the first two volumes of this and Naruto, I think would be kind of interesting to see what it would do for your brain. And again, it like Axe Cop kind of gave me that position of I spent a much more time 
inside the pieces enjoying them than I thought that I would, even though I spent a lot more time kind of outside them, appreciating them from a distance, you know, which no, that, me, that makes sense. Yeah. Which, which again, you know, is a little bit more satisfying to me than something like fear itself, where I spent a ton of time outside the story and not really appreciating it very much at all. Um, Ditto, unfortunately, with Secret Avengers number 11, which I guess is the next to last issue of Brubaker's run and was just I, – I, I don't I, – I, I don't think that he he's done a pretty – a job at all of selling anyone on this book as to why people would want to read what they're reading, I guess. Well, Secret Avengers has become this odd, odd thing. I mean the fact that um, Alice has taken over for six months or maybe a year – to essentially make fun of it, I think is one of the signs that Marvel is like, we have no idea what to do with this book right now. Oh, is he is he making fun of it? Well, yeah, he he probably like would not admit it, mm-hmm. but they released like a or he released a portion of script from it, mm-hmm. and it's like this pilot talking about like Yankee capitalist dog, like it's it looked very much like Ellis wow. doing his like over the top next waveness. I mean, it probably won't be as over the top as next wave because I don't think there's any way Marvel would let him do that. Right. But um, let's see, try, see if I can try and find the Ellis. Um, yeah, once I found out that he was on the book, I, at first I heard it was Nick Spencer, and I was like, oh, well, that's because it was. Issues. Right. But but just for like really brief, like in between the two guys, right? Like yeah. In between Brubaker. But also, I mean, you know that Ellis is on for six months, but maybe a year, which is another thing that just seems really odd to me. Yeah. Yeah, it's like it really does seem like Marvel. Like we have no idea what to do. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't know what the fuck they were thinking with Secret Avengers. Well, I think that they were thinking like we get an Avengers book, we get a Brubaker Avengers book, uh, you know, and with a whole bunch of characters that you know they did a great job of building up hype for the book, and then when the book launched, um, very few people cared very yeah, quickly, I, including Brubaker. It seems. Well, and that's it. I, I don't I, – I'm be very curious. It's one of those things where, you know, it's like if you were able to corner Ed and get him drunk, you would well, find out. He said on Word Balloon, and it seems to be like relatively honest, mm-hmm. that it's one of those things where it just took him forever to write the damn thing because he doesn't like writing team books. Mm. And he was just having a terrible time personally and he was like, something's got to give. It'll be this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Okay, here's the Ellis dialogue. Yes, Pilot Marco shoots stupid Yankee zillion dollar plane right in stupid bloody face. Where is your bloody Steve Jobs technology now, rich Yankee pigs with your tight pants? Holy fuck. Seriously, I read that and I thought, great, I, that's a book I'm totally not going to be picking up. And yet I can, I can almost name the people right now on the internet who are going to be like, this is the greatest book that Marvel are publishing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's got its audience, but that audience just definitely isn't me. You know, it's kind of a shame because, again, it's that deal of, like, I feel like that audience could have been me. Like, I enjoyed Next Wave first time around. I Actually, I'm not even sure I enjoyed it all the way through to the end, but I liked enough of it. But Next, wave, end, Next wave was a great one-note joke that I don't think really supported a year. <laughs> never, never mind. Yeah. Everyone's going, I wish it could have continued. It really couldn't have. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I it, it's kind of a shame. Well, and I think ultimately that was my problem is that was the closest I came to feeling like Ellis was capable of doing just a dumb comic 
you know, like it started off where it's like, here I am doing a dumb comic, woo, bam, pow, and kind of being in a way of like, and it's fun. Like you can do this and actually have fun. And then somewhere after the fourth issue, you know, Ellis became sober again and was like, oh, what am I? I hate myself. I hate myself. I hate you people. I hate all of us for doing this. I, I will now begin to hate all of you. You know, and uh, that's kind of the point at which I was like, oh, all right, well, thanks for believing that superhero comics could be fun for four issues. You gave it your best shot. <laughs> you tried. Let's I, all I, suffer through the next eight issues together. <laughs> so, so wait, is, is the um, is Secret Invaders just not, sorry, Secret Invaders, Secret Avengers just not worked? Well, yeah, ultimately, I think it's going to go down as a big old flop, but. I mean, as invested as I was in it, because I was like, okay, you've got, you know, two big mega pieces um, that seem a little skimpy on characterization, but A, you're eventually going to get characterization, and B, the storylines are going to come together. Like, you know, first you've got characters being taken over on Mars, you know, with some big, huge, mysterious temple that you've got a secret, you know, sort of weird shadow government organization, you know, uh, running. And the shadow government organization has ties to, they're clearly interested in resurrecting Fu Manchu, and one of their main number one characters is the Nick Fury clone from the Defenders, you know, uh, Dave Kraft's Defenders way back when. I was like, awesome, how can this go wrong? And, <laughs> and then you found out. Well, yeah, I mean, ultimately it just kind of goes wrong by continuing to sort of like do a and this happened and this happened and this happened and this is building bigger and this is building bigger and like it's kind of like okay what's the stakes for the issue oh well Shang-Chi got kidnapped well how are we going to get him back well we've got to do this but how are we going to be able to like well we'll set up this secret plan that is going to like ambush the ambushers and then oh but we ourselves are ambushed and it's like somehow in the middle of everyone talking about what's going on you're just like it would be really nice if I knew these characters or liked these characters. So Secret Avengers number 11, the issue that just came out, is uh, they have captured the number one, you know, the the other right-hand man of the, the Shadow Council, which is uh, superhero, superhuman John Steele, America's first super soldier. Who uh, appeared in Brubaker's Marvel's Project series. Ah, that's why we're supposed to care about him. I have no idea who this dude is. Uh, I don't really... So it's it starts off as it's a team-up issue. You know, it's a flashback in World War II between Captain America and John Steele. And they're basically trying to find out what happened to John Steele. And it's where you get the, the picture of the Martians, you know, with the, oh, with really? the shadow government okay. thing. Yeah, because there's a shot where... But see, the thing that I think is actually very clever is they're both sort of in this sort of virtual reality machine that that the Beast has set up to explore John Steele's memories. But as he points out, it's like, they're memories, but there's also imagination in there. Like, we can't tell what really happened and what didn't. And because Captain America was also on the mission, he's like, okay, plug me into the machine and we'll have my my memories to counterbalance things. So... So there's so it explains why they're both in there, but there's actually some uh, there's a little more um, I don't know 
uh, I guess, threat to it than just a simple flashback because it's the meeting of these guys' two, two minds. Anyway, there's a point where John Steele, like, turns the corner, tells Captain America, like, take cover, and then he looks, and it's the members of the Shadow Conspiracy, and they are leading what looks like a Martian, you know, from the, the War of the Worlds type stuff, the sort of octopus-type creature on chains. And John Steele's like, oh my god, I know what's happening even in this godforsaken war zone, they still work the shadows. And then at that point, everything goes screwy and um, you don't actually end up seeing the Martian again. What happens is John Steele freaks out, shoots Captain America in the fantasy. They both come out of the fantasy and then John Steele has, you know, woken up out of his coma and has taken scientists prisoners. Okay. Apart from the fact that you don't care about John Steele, I have no idea who this guy is because I didn't read Brubaker's other project. But even if, even if I did, there's no there's no characterization to him at all. He's just like a dude, um, a super competent dude. Like you get to see them run around, punch Nazis, and then he's like threatening the scientist. He, Brubaker's got one issue to wrap this all up, I guess, and then Spencer comes in and does whatever Spencer's doing, and it's just like. It's like twelve issues of mush, you know. It looked like Unless it was going to be. Brubaker does an awesome wrap-up. Yeah, exactly. He's going or, to have to do the. Or likely awesome he carries wrap-ups. it into his cat book. Right. Exactly. He's going to carry it into his cat book or his next event or like who knows. For all we know, it's the stealth fear itself thing, you know. And we're actually going to end up being invaded by Martians three issues in. I don't well, know. Well, you heard this. I told you the spectacular. You told me the Russian wonderful, thing, right? yeah, yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Which theory. I still hope is true, but I don't think it is. Yeah, I don't. I kind of don't expect that it is as well. Um, okay, I have I have a, a one last question before we wrap this up because we've been digging an hour and a half. Uh, so you basically said that Secret Avengers is, you know, this happens, this happens, this happens. No characterization. Right. How does that line up against Fantastic Four by Hickman? Sadly, it's 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 very similar. I think as I that's part of why I guess I use the the, the same term. I get the difference is to me. I feel like Brubaker is a better craftsman, having had more experience in the field at making you feel like things don't just start and end. I mean, it's funny because even then I mentioned that you know the, the one of the just letting a storyline drop so the characters can go have something to eat is something that, that Brew Baker had done. I feel, I feel he's, I feel he's just a better craftsman. So on the one hand, for me, for the most part, it's like I've picked up an issue of comics and felt like I've read an issue of comics The, but I don't feel like I care. The difference is with Hickman, I don't feel like I care. I also kind of don't feel like I'm getting anything close to a full story, you know, like, Brubaker's telling me a very empty story, but at least I feel like there's an opening, there's a rising, there's a closing, there's enough action in it. It, it just it just has no investment, you know? And unfortunately for me, I feel like Hickman makes more gestures at trying to get me involved personally, but the very passive nature of the characters makes the story feel stalled and artificial and... And I can see be I can see behind the curtain, you know what I mean? Too easily. Yeah. And with Brew Baker, it's just a very, very empty experience. So 
And I, I apologize, dear listeners, for spending way too much time gabbing. I feel like this was the All Jeff podcast. I am perfectly happy with the All Jeff podcast. No, you and and maybe me in my more self-satisfied moments. But for the most part... Ladies and gentlemen, please leave comments saying that you want more All Jeff podcasts. Even no. though I feel like I did a lot of talking this time. I think maybe we, jo- we both did talking, Jeff. I hope so, Graham. I hope so. <laughs> right. That's the place to leave it. <laughs>